The talk is about uh, finding balance by being comfortable being out of balance. Or the tightrope. <laughs> this is a um, poem by St. Catherine of Siena. Um, she lived in the 14th century. Uh, there isn't that much known about her life other than that she died at 33 and was extraordinarily compassionate. I wanted to be a hermit and only hear the hymns of the earth and the laughter of the sky and the sweet gossip of the creatures on my limbs, the forests. I wanted to be a hermit and not see another face look upon mine and tell me I was not all the beauty in this world. For so many faces do that, cage us. The wings we have are so fragile they can break from just one word or a glance void of love. I wanted to live in that cloister of light's silence because is it not true the heart is so fragile and shy? So is it not true that the heart is so fragile and shy? In the meditation practice, um, we're trying to find a deeper and deeper balance of vulnerability as well as strength. And the vulnerability is the heart breaking open more and more to how life is. But also the strength comes from the wisdom, from seeing things as they are. It comes from the compassion, from caring about the pain in the world. We have a deep spiritual need for wholeness, to feel complete, for our hearts to be strong as well as broken. And as humans, tragically, we often look for immortality or the wholeness in what is impermanent. So we then hold on to experiences that have already passed, or we try to repeat experiences that we found pleasant. We try to hold on to people um, that no longer are healthy for us, you know, or have passed. And we also find it difficult to open to a lot of the moments of life that are boring or feel incomplete. Somehow, if you look closely at um, what the Buddha called a stream of dissatisfaction that is kind of an undercurrent in our moment-to-moment -moment experience. Uh, so the question is, um, how do we find home? You know, we're so homesick for home. Uh, and then we try to live by willpower, or we try to make belief, make believe our life has meaning. Um, usually we go through, I think, periods in our life where we have these epiphanies, where we see that uh, it's only meeting with the truth head on. It's like facing the truth of our lives head on. Uh, that, that in that meeting, the universe touches us deeply. And it's in that uh, intimacy with, with the universe uh, that we find the meaning and we find the completion and the wholeness that we have been looking for. The mindfulness practice is all about um, learning how to face the dissatisfaction, the brokenheartedness, the incompletion, uh, to go through the ordinariness. 
and find this uh, depth of wholeness within each ordinary moment. Holy moments. Each moment has this capacity to be a holy moment. It can be confusing, I think, as we go through a long day of practice in silence, um, why the heart can be so fragile or shy. And Steve um, began the process of us uh, bringing in the Buddha's teaching around feelings and change. So by feelings, we don't mean emotion, but we mean the uh, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral feelings that occur with each moment of consciousness. Us humans are born into this profound world of change that we have very little control over. Uh, A lot of the meditation practice is facing this change, dropping into the change on a non-conceptual level when we can. And when we do drop in on the non-conceptual level, it's possible for insight to happen. And again, that insight is happening from coming face to face with the truth of how things are. It's not how we're thinking life to be, but really this profound, visceral heart understanding. Um, and we'll, we'll talk a lot about the, the possibility of insight. Uh, and tonight I just wanted to um, touch into the context of this possibility. You know, so but again, by a kind of careful and continuous a non-judgmental attention of our moment-to-moment experience, it's possible to have insight into a Nietzsche or change. And the, the initial insights around change are the basis for subsequent insights uh, that are very liberating. So it, and when we start to see that um, with the breath, that it takes birth, that it lives, that it passes away. Now, there are many breaths where we don't have a kind of visceral, deep insight around impermanence, but sometimes we'll just kind of be knocked out by this understanding of how everything that takes birth on the planet, in the universe, will pass away. And we can't make that insight happen, but it's just like that. There's this possibility just by being aware of one sound, one breath, one chewing of an apple and swallowing it and it disappearing. You know, it's just any moment has this possibility for holiness, for understanding. And as we start to face this change, we see that we're not trying to maintain constant pleasure Uh, We're trying to maintain some continuity of a non-judgmental awareness of the vast range of joy and sorrow. And as we start to accept this change, and, you know, we we really have different um, levels of really being able to receive change and accept it, Uh, but we start to get that Mindfulness is really just a soft readiness. It's a, it's a readiness where any, we realize there's understanding that anything can happen because of change. So it's out of this facing change, facing change, that we can understand dukkha, the, the uh, second characteristic of existence. And this insight really depends on the insight into change. So we see that experience is unreliable, uncertain. Uh, And that really hooks up with the heart that can tend to be fragile. uh, Because if our heart is open to how life is, if the heart is open to the truth of things, it can be easily broken, as we can see, because we can't hold on to much of anything um, in truth. 
So understanding dukkha has many, many levels. It's difficult to translate into one word, but that sense of unreliability, uncertainty can be helpful. And then getting a sense that the mindfulness, if it's going to follow with the stream of life and uncertainty, does imply the heart being soft, open, and just ready. And this isn't always easy for us. You know, you, when you come in to sit or go out for a walking, we can again see how much we can compare one sitting with the other or one walking with the other. Or often at this point in the retreat, one's remembering the end of one's last retreat, you know, just to keep going. You know, I mean, it's usually not so easy the first few days of a retreat. And we often get ourselves to a retreat by remembering all that great equanimity that we had at the end of the last retreat. Usually we don't come to retreats motivated by what's happening the first few days of a retreat. (laughs) And then there's insight into anatta, atta being self, anatta, selflessness, um, often the most difficult for uh, us humans to grasp. Um, But we see again by this, this mindfulness or soft readiness that we can apply with some continuity. It doesn't mean perfect continuity, but with some continuity. We start to see that anything we pay attention to with this consideration We can't uh, find a trace of a separate existence. So we see that things are fully interdependent. Uh, And there's, again, this vast discovery that's possible, profound levels of anatta, you know, where we discover this um, freedom of interrelatedness from this insight into anatta. I think that we love freedom and we love the unknown, but we don't tend to love dukkha. We don't like the possibility that uncertainty implies at some point that pain will arise. And so this is why it's hard for us to find balance and be comfortable, the balance meaning the comfort level with this range of pleasure, pain joy and sorrow. <coughs> One of my favorite uh, poets is Saigyo, a Japanese 13th century poet who is a Buddhist monk. Um, and his practice, a lot of it uh, was like Basho, who lived many centuries later. Uh, but their practice was going on sometimes excruciating long pilgrimages into the mountains of Japan. He said, all so vague in autumn, the reasons why all fall away. And there's just this inexplicable sadness. No content to the thoughts about the sadness. You know, this is a real beautiful poem that has that sense of emptiness, but sadness. And I feel that um, often the second day of a retreat of silence, we can, you know, especially when the rain comes, that autumn rain comes, we can touch and the darkness (laughs) comes. It's really important to remember that um, a retreat has aspects of intentional suffering. And that we will touch into these places of inexplicable sadness, no reason, just that um, it can just be that deep human experience of winter coming and all that implies of change. So we create on retreat the conditions for intentional suffering. We're creating the conditions 
um, for profound levels of investigation into how life is. As we start to allow for and accept the range of pleasure and pain, joy and sorrow, we'll begin to relax. And as the insights deepen, there's more relaxation, more relaxation. And the energy that was put into trying to arrange our moments so that they're more satisfactory or that experience is yielding just a little more happiness than what it really is. You know, all those tricky ways that we try to get more comfort. As we stop trying to control our experience like that, energy is freed up. Um, And that energy goes again into facing the truth. Uh, There's more relaxation and more energy freed up. Uh, if one thinks of energy as courage, one can see that the, you know there's again this profound possibility of loving the practice, not love that's coming out of um, a, a, a controlled pleasure intake, and a, you know an up and up and up right onto pleasure, <coughs> as much as a love of the truth and a love of the insight that comes from facing the truth. So the opposite of understanding (coughs) is thinking that we can control life, or we we think that experience will bring happiness. And we all know the massive amount of suffering that comes in our life from believing that and falling for it. And we do. You know, we're suckers for thinking that, you know, happiness will yield that deeper happiness. And please... Please don't think that um, we're saying or that the Buddha was teaching that pleasure and pain is the problem. The presence of pleasure and the presence of pain in the world isn't the problem. It is the pushing away, the control, pushing away the fear of the unpleasantness of pain and the trying to make the pleasure last longer than it does. I bought a mountain bike last fall, and I'm um, not very technical. (laughs) I like to kind of go out on a stroll in the woods with my bike. And yesterday, I went out, the day before yesterday, on a trail that um, I don't know very well. And it, you know, what are they called? All-terrain vehicles? You know those... Vehicles, the ATVs with those big tires. Well, this place had just been dug up and eaten up by these tires. And then I just wasn't expecting these big puddles and deep puddles. And uh, it just just kept getting worse. You know, this just, I kept thinking, it's going to get better. (laughs) It's going to get easier. You know, and and I I kept having to get off the bike. And I had to go through poison ivy. And, you know, it was like getting more and more like, I don't like this. And, you know, this isn't fun. And then I got to this puddle. Like, it was the puddle from hell. You know, I mean, it was just deep and... You know, I mean, the bike would have literally thought <laughs> the bike would have had to go underwater and me, too, to get through this place. So I was looking at it like, <clears throat> you know, <laughs> I didn't want to turn back because the road was up there soon and I knew I could go back by <laughs> this pleasant tar road, uh, which I was looking forward to at this point. Um, so I had to get up on this log, you know, like this. It was, this is why I'm talking about... Um, the tightrope, you know, because present time awareness can seem like a tightrope, yes, but I realized as I was walking up this log, I was trying it out before I even had the bike, right, because this log is beside this deep puddle and then this big chasm, and I couldn't even figure out yet how I was going to get the bike on it. I was just trying to see if I could walk on it, you know, just me. So I started walking on the log, and it was very narrow and rickety, and I was just interested in how, you know, it was all being out of balance. Like it was just constantly 
finding balance by being out of balance. And it was reminding me so much about the practice. You know, because the practice, life is this constant change. And if we're really aware, each moment is different. And we have to keep renewing this balance with each moment, with each moment, with each moment. And we keep thinking balance is some kind of stationary, secure, you know, way of being. But actually, it's just this wild ride. Um, So then I had to get, this was great, right? I was having all this (laughs) insight, and I liked being on the log by myself. Then I had to try to drag the bike behind me, and I was going backwards, pulling the bike. It was bad. Uh, uh, we both we both fell into the puddle. <laughs> you know, and I spent I'd say 25 minutes trying not to do that. <laughs> and it wasn't that bad. I mean, it was like my sneakers were wet. I was all muddy. But you know, it was just so interesting to see how. What was I doing? You know, why was it so? I mean, it was choreographed. <laughs> with the max. And then when it, the bike and I, when I fell in, it was like, okay, it's, it's okay. <laughs> Someone asked about surrender the other day. You know, it was just, it was fine. It was just wet and cold and muddy. <laughs> so, being comfortable being out of balance. Uh, Today would have been my sister's birthday, and she died a year and a half ago. Um, And for me, this day brings up some grief. because she died so young. And I've been very busy the last few days, and I have an older sister that drinks at night, and I try to call her before she starts drinking heavily. Um, And I didn't quite manage it today. So I left, what my trick is to leave a message on her answering machine (laughs) before she gets home. which has some control in it, right? But it's on a day like today where I have a talk, it's kind of survival. So I left her this nice message about how I know it's, you know, her birthday and I'm thinking of you and, um, you know, if you're sad, I'm sorry, but, you know, it's okay. I just left this kind of nice message. And while I was working on the talk, my sister called and I realized, no, don't answer it. You know, that's, that's not safe, you know, at seven o'clock. And I was, it was so interesting. She started leaving me this message that said, Hi, um, this, it was like a lecture. Today is a happy day. This is not a sad day. Today is a happy day. I'm like, <laughs> And I could feel that. Okay, so life is this stream of change, right? And I could feel myself just closing. You know, I didn't want to be told not to be sad. I wanted her to say she was sad, or at least, you know, be somewhat empathetic. And I know she's going to start drinking and call me in a well and just start crying. You know, that's how she controls it. Um, And that's, I've had to learn to accept that. It's like, that's her way, and I have my way. But it was so interesting as she started to say, basically, I was hearing, it's not okay to be sad. And I could feel that resistance rather than opening. And then it was like, oh, it's okay. She doesn't want to be sad at this moment (laughs) in time. And it's true, you know, it's a happy day and that she was born, you know. And what I feel is so important for us is to be able to hold both and to just let the feelings just flow. It's all true. So the celebration for me is celebrating her life, including the joy and the sorrow. And I find that um, this non-acceptance of the unpleasant, 
you know, the range of it, with whether it's emotion or physical sensations. Again, it, it can be so interesting if we have some energy to look at it. When I was um, flying here on my way from Honolulu to this retreat, um, there was a man sitting next to me in the plane, and I just had this feeling he was going to want to talk. Um, it was one of those looks when he sat down. And it just so happens that he um, works for Tom Ridge, the Homeland Security. He works right under him. Um, and he's been working really hard on airport security and security since 9-11 and was in the city when 9-11 happened. Uh, and when he found out that I'm a meditation teacher, he started talking more and um, he, he just hit this place of vulnerability and he said, you know, whenever I go to a cocktail party or I go home to my wife and children, if anyone asks me how I am, I have to go into the bathroom and just sob. You know, he's so traumatized by this work that he's doing, and he cares so much, and it, it's so difficult for him in terms of really facing how <laughs> hard it is to provide security in the airports and in the homeland. And um, I looked at him, and I rarely say this to anyone, and I said, you know, I, I think you need meditation. <laughs> I really, you know... <laughs> And he was like, I think so. <laughs> I said, if you're, if you're losing it, you know, every time somebody asks you how you are, you know, it's a sign, you know. <laughs> so he said, well, can you tell me anything now? You know, and I was like, well, uh, and we, you know, I told him about retreats and, and I will share with you what I was sharing with him. Um, which is that this tightrope of present-time awareness um, is really mindfulness. And mindfulness, when it's complete, will get pieces of this. But when it's complete, it includes a recognizing presence. Just like, it's like if sadness is there, it's just recognizing it. You know how we can miss an experience? or if the breath is there, or hearing. It's just being able to, as Steve's been emphasizing, know that something's happening. And then the second part is an accepting presence. You know, we can recognize what's happening, but not accept it. This is huge. It's huge. These first two are how we go from being homesick to home, from not being here to here. So it's recognition is huge, and then acceptance is major. And you know, if, re if acceptance isn't happening, what's happening is resistance. And that's okay too, one can learn how to accept resistance. So I call this RAIN, you know, receptive or recognition, uh, ref you know, recognition, acceptance, interest an interested presence. You know, the jump from acceptance to interest is huge. You know, we can be accepting something like, oh yeah, sadness, or you know, oh yeah, knee pain. You know, that you can be accepting it, but are we really interested? This is again a leap. And if there's enough energy, this curiosity is a light in the mind. Um, and you can't force this, you can't make it happen, but you can really appreciate it. When, when interest in back pain happens or interest in knee pain happens, you know the mindfulness is strong. And then the last part, the end of the rain, is <coughs> a non-identified presence or a non-self-referencing presence. And that's where that understanding, you know, the anatta presence or emptiness is, is um, that flavor is in the mindfulness. When, when we have some of those present, you know, sometimes we can have a non-identified presence and not an interest. So it doesn't mean that all of those are present at once, but when we're not taking our experience personally, 
Again, it's like this thorn comes out of the heart. When we're not taking knee pain personally, you can sit there with it for a really long time. It's okay. It's not ours. You know, so what I would really recommend, uh, you know, especially the first part of a retreat, is really just kind of investigating what elements of the body you find acceptable and non-acceptable. You know, that range of earth element from, from hardness to softness. If we can be more interested in just seeing, you know, if you sit on your buttocks for an hour, certainly you're going to start experiencing earth element. <laughs> it's hard, you know, ouch. <laughs> you know, and it, a lot of that ouch is, whoa, I don't really like earth element that much. As a matter of fact, <laughs> you know, and so we like the soft aspect of it, but we don't like the hard, and just seeing if we can explore that. Temperature, we tend to accept cool and warmth, burning when the, you know, when the, the hardness and the burning and the pulling and <laughs> the tightness and the shoulders start, you know, that's air, <laughs> earth fire element, you know, and can, again, can we just step back and see that this is just earth, air, fire, and water, and it's the unpleasant aspects of these elements that we tend not to find acceptable, and they're part of life. So what I found when I first started meditating, when I asked myself the question that I'm asking you to ask, I literally, when I first started practicing, didn't accept my experience and in life. I'd say 99% of my experience wasn't acceptable. And when I look at my life now, most of it has trans, you know, my understanding and understanding of that range, most of my experience is acceptable. And if it isn't, the resistance is acceptable. And so one moves from, we, we do as humans, we move from not really accepting the unpleasant aspects of physical or emotional or mental pain in the meditation practice through this mindfulness, through the recognition, acceptance, interest, and non-self-referencing or non-identification. We move from this dissatisfaction to contentment, to peace. So again, at this point in the retreat, you're not going to be loving hardness, burning, tightness, pulling, throbbing. You know, I mean, it's just, or, you know, rage or terror. Or, you know, there's not that much energy for it yet. But certainly, in the next days, you'll start to see when the energy comes together that you can be. You don't have to wait two weeks or three weeks. It'll, this ability to be mindful will come and go. And we encourage you to be with the anchor of the breath, with the movement of the legs, as a relief from that, as a place to go back to that's neutral. And please don't underestimate that, that ability to synchronize the attention with the breath or the movement of the legs is meant to be a rest. It's meant to be healing. It's meant to be strengthening so that when we have it in us again to face life as it is, to face the change, to face that range of pleasant to unpleasant, that we can drop into that for a while, and then when we need to, go back to the breath, or the movement of the legs, or sound, you know, whatever, whatever you're needing to do to find balance in this unbalanced world of change. Another way that I think that we, we do lose balance um, is around our interpretation that we make about ourselves in relationship to unpleasant or pleasant experience. It's like somewhere deep we think that it's our fault <laughs> um, if, if experience is unpleasant rather than pleasant. And I have an example of my great-niece, who's four years old now. Um, and I think when, when we're children, we tend to not censor as much what we say 
or just that expression of how things are are, are often more clear. Uh, and one morning, you know, just to give you a context, in my family, self-hatred is very predominant in self-destruction, so loving yourself is not really that well-discovered, and especially to say something like, and any kind of look of self-love is not acceptable. Um, it would look um, conceited. You know, so this, this is a you know, new generation, four years old. You know, she's just kind of open. And she made this beautiful painting. My, my niece and I were watching her make this painting. And she's good. She's very artistic. And it's a beautiful painting. And she could tell we really liked it. Uh, I mean, we weren't, it wasn't just that we liked it. She could tell it was good, and she was very pleased with herself. And so she got so pleased with herself, she looked at it. When she saw it through our eyes, she really felt good about herself. It wasn't just through her eyes. She saw it through our eyes, um, and she looked at us, and she said, I love myself. And we're laughing. Look how you know. Look how we are as humans. I mean, we just don't do that, right? You know. But if you really have a good sitting, you know, you'll sit there, and you know, we feel special. You know, we feel good about ourselves. Um, <laughs> but how much of the time do we do this? And then that afternoon, um, her brother is eight, and and um, she doesn't like him to get much attention. She's a, she's a steamroller, and I have to try to really work hard at giving him attention and balancing it. And we were playing, playing hide-and-go-seek, and he was getting a little attention, and she was getting very upset. And I, had, I said, Brenna, you know, <laughs> we have to share. You know, that whole rap you get when you're a kid, and, you know, it's what you need to learn to do. And she just had a fit. She threw herself on the bed, backwards, and then it wasn't good enough. She threw herself on the bed forwards and you know, had her hands like this, and she was like, I hate myself. You know, I hate myself more than you'll ever know. You know, she just, just, just this worst self-hatred attack because she knew she didn't want to share. And she was jealous, and she could see that through my eyes. And she made that interpretation about herself, that she was no good that she's worthless, that she's horrid. This is four years old. She has a nice mom and dad, you know? I mean, this is how we are. And so when things aren't going well on the practice, you know, from our experience, what do we do? We feel like we're failing, we're no good. It's, you know, and just see if you can step back again and become interested in this. When it's going good, I feel great about myself. That's the interpretation. When it's going bad, I feel horrible about myself. This meditation practice, this kind, Vipassana, where you're not just going for the peak experience. You know, this course is designed so that you get to face sleepiness. This course is designed so you get to face restlessness. You know, it's, it's designed so that you go through life. It's designed so that you go through boredom. It, it's, it's not designed so that you just have this hour of greatness. <laughs> you know, you can feel so good about that one sitting or walking or whatever, and maybe, you know, maybe it's every other day that you get that greatness, you know, but whatever it is, you know, we, we are designing life just as it is. We don't, you know, there's nothing special about this. We get up, you, you stay awake all day, or, you know, you go in and out of sleepiness and are awake, and you go to sleep. It's, we're not changing anything. We're designing it so that we go through life, and there'll be the joys and sorrows, the ups and downs. And we're meant to start seeing through that interpretation about ourselves in regard to our experience, which leads to greater and greater contentment. The less we're trying to get experience to yield for ourselves a happiness that will be based on some kind of identification with experience, 
the more happy we really are. It's okay. We don't, we don't take it personally that there's sleepiness. We don't take it personally that there's boredom. It's not our fault. You just go through it. And it just becomes, you know, more and more this discovery and awe at the ability to really be human. You don't have to change anything. You can be content as a human. playing with glasses to see which ones <laughs> work. I don't think these are <laughs> going to work, but I want to try it. Mm-hmm. I know about these. Okay. I just got this new book of poetry by Louise Erdrich, and um, it's called Original Fire. She's a great Native American poet of our generation. And it's called Advice to Myself. Leave the dishes. Let the celery rot in the bottom drawer of the refrigerator and an earthen scum harden on the kitchen floor. Leave the black crumbs in the bottom of the toaster. Throw the crack bowl out and don't patch the cup. Don't patch anything. Don't mend. Buy safety pins. Don't even sew on a button. Let the wind have its way then the earth that invades as dust, and then the dead foaming up in gray rolls underneath the couch. Talk to them. Tell them they are welcome. Don't keep all the pieces of the puzzles or the doll's tiny shoes in pairs. Don't worry who uses whose toothbrush or if anything matches at all. Accept one word to another or a thought. Pursue the authentic. Decide first what is authentic, then go after it with all your heart. Your heart, that place you don't even think of cleaning out, that closet stuffed with savage mementos. Don't sort the paper clips from screws, from saved baby teeth, or worry if we're all eating cereal for dinner again. Don't answer the telephone ever or weep over anything at all that breaks. Pink molds will grow within those sealed cartons in the refrigerator, except new forms of life. (laughs) 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 And talk to the dead who drift in through the screen windows, who collect patiently on the tops of food jars and books. Recycle the mail. Don't read it. Don't read anything except what destroys the insulation between yourself and your experience, or what pulls down, or what strikes at, or what shatters this ruse you call necessity. What we're doing here is that we're cleaning out the heart and we're really looking at what is it that comes between us and our experience? What is it that um, keeps us from feeling at home in each moment? One of the things I would suggest exploring and I think we all know so well, or we wouldn't be here, is that when we're identified with a resistance to what's happening in our experience, we're not at home. And I found that a lot of the ice within myself started to melt when I allowed myself to close, when I would allow myself to contract and play with it. It's like when you notice sleepiness come up, Of course, 
we don't like sleepiness, you know, we want to be enlightened, right? You know, I mean, you know, you're sitting here, it's a setup. You start to fall asleep, and of course you're going to think you shouldn't be sleeping. You know, that's, it's okay to have that thought. And then it's really, how do you work with that energy of resistance? It's really just not liking it. And if you can open to that place of not liking it, of closing to it, at some point, the acceptance will come. If you fight the resistance, it just becomes a war. And we lose. And we lose. Because we can't control low energy. Low energy will come and go by itself. Another place to play with this would be just when you bring your attention to the breath. Often for most people, when we bring our attention right with the breath, we often tighten around it, we'll control it a bit. Uh, And this was a great place for me to practice letting tightening be okay. It might not be the breath with you, it might be body pain or whatever, but if you can become curious about resistance at this point in the retreat, it's huge because then most of your experience will start to be okay. It's okay to back away from things. It's okay to go to the breath. You know, and then what I started to do with the breath when I noticed I was controlling it was to open up to the place that was wider than that and then stay with that place of non-control and then kind of sneak up on it until I noticed that tightening again. Allow the tightening. Back off from it. Allow the tightening. Back off from it. And slowly over time, my system allowed myself to touch it, the breath, without the tightening. But that came from allowing the tightening. And once you learn that with something, you might learn it with knee pain rather than the breath, or you might learn to do it with grief or anger rather than knee pain. But once you learn to do it with one thing, you start being able to apply it to another and another. And that's the path of the practice. Fully enlightened means there's no resistance to anything whatsoever. And that's why this is called practice. Because you know the things that you're still resisting and that you still need practice with. And that's where I just love this practice so much because, you know, you just, you just learn with a little and then you learn a little more and you learn a little more and you learn a little more. Um, and what's the hurry? You just do the best you can. Uh, and once again, once you have the faith that comes from, I think of it's like this confidence. You start having confidence in the strength of your own mindfulness and the strength of your heart. And when you can't, just be okay with that. Go back to the breath. Go to sound. You know, just to really accept our limits is part of this process. It's also being human. The last thing I wanted to mention about this process um, is that it really repairs trust in ourselves. You know, that ability to begin again uh, and to really allow ourselves to know what we know repairs any disconnect that we're conditioned to have with our experience. And that's so um, heartening. It's heartening to understand that we can heal any disconnect. And that it, it's just a matter, it's, it's inevitable. You know, this, this um, enlightenment and understanding that we can bring to each and every experience is just inevitable if we put in our time. Um, 
So at this point in the retreat, I would recommend, you know, when you wake up, punch in. And when you go to sleep, punch out. And that's all you need to do. You know, just, just do the best you can. Punch in, punch out every day. And it'll happen by itself. Although, I, do, I will tell one more story. My, um, I hadn't seen my ex-brother-in-law in a long time. Uh, him and my s- older sister got married when they were 15. Had three kids. And I um, raised their kids helped raise their kids. And I, I, said, I, don't, I hadn't seen him for a long time. And he was at my niece's recently. And he's a great carpenter at this point. He started having to do carpentry at 15. Um, and he was putting in this wood floor in my niece's um, living room. And he's a very hard worker. He got up, he started working on it at 6 in the morning, and he finished it at 8.30 at night. And I walked in around 8.15, and I was watching him, and it's such a joy to watch him put down a floor. I mean, he's so good, and such a craftsman. And at the end, I looked at him and I said, Kirk, you, you really make this look totally effortless. And he looked at me with this great mischief in his eye, and he said, it sure takes a lot of effort to make it look effortless. <laughs> Let's sit for a minute. It does take a lot of effort to learn to, each moment, have to find balance, lose it again, find balance, moment by moment, to be comfortable with that process.